I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. Good day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian medical education podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions and obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered and addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoy the whole program and welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. In this episode of Aussie Med Ed, we get to interview Dr. Nick Knight, an anaesthetist who's going to give his opinion and advice regarding airway maintenance, intubation you know, versus laryngeal mass, stages of anaesthesia, complications of anaesthesia to be aware of, and medications often used during anaesthesia. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide in South Australia, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land for which this podcast has been produced and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. It's my pleasure now to introduce Dr Nick Knight. He's an anaesthetist who works at Pulse Anaesthetics as well as a staff specialist at the Royal Adelaide Hospital in South Australia. He completed medical school at the University of Oxford and studied at the Royal Free and at the University College of Medical School in the United Kingdom. He now works in Adelaide in South Australia and I'm very pleased to have him on this program to talk about different aspects of anaesthesia. Dr Nick Knight. Nick, it's great to have you on board. Thanks very much for joining us with Aussie Med Ed. Um, it's really great to have an anaesthetist here to answer a few questions for the medical students. One of the first few questions I've asked us about is actually about preoperative assessment. What do you take on board when you go to assess a patient prior to an anaesthesia? Well, like anything in medicine, it's done by history, examination and investigation. Uh, probably more so on the history. Uh, first thing we always ask is about previous anaesthetics and uh, have there been any problems? And the answer is no, usually no, but um, it's, so it's nice to know if they have had any specific issues before. Uh, other things that are important to know are about other medical problems that the patient may have. So we take a full medical history, uh, particularly with the cardiovascular and respiratory system, although any system is important. We like to know about what medications they're on, uh, if there's any potential for interactions with the anesthesia or that might might pose problems for the surgery. And we like to know if they have any allergies that may or may not be specific to anesthesia. We also, for our examination, we do look at all systems, again, particularly the cardiovascular and respiratory systems, but we do a, a, an assessment of the airway as well to see whether one, if there'd be an easy airway to manage uh, and how easy they might be to put a tube into. Moving on to investigations, which if they're fit and healthy, doesn't have to be done, but common things would be blood tests, uh, and then if they have any respiratory or cardiovascular issues, we might look for things like chest X-rays, pulmonary function tests, or echocardiograms, ECGs, those kind of things. What about fasting? But the, how important is the fasting time for an anaesthesia? Yeah, fast, fasting is important. Um, so generally, we like patients to be fasted for six hours for food, uh, four hours for non-clear fluids, and two hours for clear fluids, so things like water, 
Uh, and the reason for this is we don't want patients to aspirate. So if they have an empty stomach, the risk of aspiration is, is vastly reduced. We don't generally anesthetize patients who have a full stomach unless it's an emergency situation because there is a significant risk of aspiration. And that's a good question for a medical student. So saying as an emergency scenario, is there a way of giving an anesthesia safely in that situation? Uh, yes, yes, there is. Uh, so again, if, if it cannot wait until the patient's fasted, uh, we would proceed with anesthesia. Um, if we have to give them a general anesthetic, we would, get, we would provide anesthesia through a, or induction through a rapid sequence induction. Um, perhaps prior to that, we would give an antacid, so uh, something like sodium citrate to neutralize any acid that is sitting in the stomach. That doesn't make any difference to any, any solid food that might be sitting there. Uh, and then we'd pre-oxygenate them uh, and, and put on cricoid pressure and use drugs that will uh, increase the speed at which anesthesia induction occurs so that we can get a tube in quickly and minimise the risk of aspiration. So what does pre-oxygenation involve? So pre-oxygenation, we do that really because uh, the, the body's reserves of oxygen are very small. There's very minimal oxygen stored in the blood. Most of your oxygen is stored in your lungs, so in your functional residual capacity. So when we're breathing air, as you know, air is uh, mostly nitrogen, 70% nitrogen, and only 21% oxygen. Uh, so uh, what we want to do is wash out all the nitrogen and replace that with oxygen so that your functional residual capacity then is full of oxygen and that, that is then your reserve of oxygen while you're apneic or while we try and get the uh, have the airway controlled. Um, until we have the airway controlled, uh, we've got a reserve of oxygen there so that they don't desaturate and and their oxygen sets you know, they don't become hypoxic. Obviously, in a standard general anesthesia, it can be broken down into different phases, I believe. I, I believe it's induction, maintenance, and emergence. Are these the terms that you would use, and what are the different stages involved, and what medications would you use involving in those stages? Medications uh, are quite varied, um, and everyone uses slightly different things. But generally speaking, we would do inductions with an IV general anesthetic, something such as propofol or thiopentone. Um, maintenance is once the case is underway, we keep the patient asleep, and that can be done with IV anesthetic agents, uh, again, such as propofol. But uh, an alternative that a lot of people use are volatile anesthetics, and that's, that's by inhalation, uh, and that keeps the patient under anesthesia. Uh, and then emergence is really wait is when the patient you want them the surgery is finished and you want them to wake up at the end of it. Uh, and again, depending on what drugs you've used, you need those to come down, so the concentrations in the plasma to come down, and, and therefore concentrations in the brain to come down, so the patient will then wake up. So for induction, we generally use uh, an opiate because uh, having uh, an endotracheal tube but through your vocal cords is very stimula stimulating. Uh, some propofol to actually anesthetize the patient and muscle relaxant to aid with intubation to relax the vocal cords. And then maintenance, uh, you can either use IV propofol or continue with a volatile anesthetic such as cibofluorane or desflurane, which is, which is an inhalational anesthetic. 
and then at emergence you would wait for those to wear the effects of those to wear off and their plasma concentration to reduce so if you're using a volatile anesthetic that's uh, the offset you offset that by breathing the volatile anesthetic out so and then muscle relaxation is is used at the beginning of anesthesia and induction to aid with intubation, laryngoscopy intubation, to relax the vocal cords. It may be required during surgery to relax muscles, depending what the surgery is. For instance, uh, abdominal surgery, laparotomies, you will need the patient relaxed. Uh, sometimes, uh, depending where, where the actual surgery is occurring, you don't necessarily need muscle relaxation. If you have used it for emergence, you either need to wait for the effects of that to have worn off or to help to help those effects wear, uh, to help wear it off or to antagonize it you can give a reversal agent as well to aid with that excellent and with a uh, anesthesia is done with a um, inhalation so people might be scared of the needles and therefore the person's put off to sleep with some gas what's done in that scenario is that the volatile anesthetics can can be used for induction of anesthesia um, we we call that a um, yeah, volatile induction, and and with that we would and it's commonly used in children, um, because it's probably it's a bit more pleasant than having a needle stuck in in your arm. So with that we get them to breathe through the mask on a closed circuit, uh, usually sieve fluorine, uh, and perhaps adding in some nitrous oxide, which is also another anaesthetic agent. They will breathe on that and that will get them anaesthetised. And then once they're anaesthetised, we can put, put an IV cannula in place and give any drugs IV that we need to. And what about the differences nowadays between laryngeal mass and intubation itself? I'd like to let you know that Aussie Media is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. Years ago it used to be purely intubation. Now I believe laryngeal masks have come on the scene and are quite popular. Yeah, so laryngeal masks were invented oh, probably about 30, 20, 30 years ago. They're a superglottic device. Uh, in that they sit above the vocal cords, uh, above the glottis, and they're, they're not a secure airway in the same way that an endotr endotracheal tube is. So an endotracheal tube uh, is a tube that will go through the vocal cords. In modern anesthesia, we usually use a cuff, so that sits below the vocal cords, and that, that seals, seals the airway so that we can do positive pressure ventilation, and it will prevent any aspiration or uh, of any regurgitated stomach contents. A supraglottic device doesn't have quite the same seal. Uh, it sits above above the vocal cords. Uh, while you can uh, give positive pressure ventilation through this, uh, most of the time we'd use it with spontaneous ventilation. So it provides a patent airway, but it's not a secure airway and it doesn't protect from uh, aspiration of regurgitated content. However, the depth of anesthesia uh, doesn't have to be as deep because it's not—it's nowhere near as stimulating as have a, having an endotracheal tube put through your vocal cords. Well, that means they can have a lighter anesthetic and they're not so nauseous when they wake up, I believe. Is that correct? Or 
Uh, possibly. I mean, it, it's you can perhaps run them a little bit lighter. Um, you you don't need as much opiates at the beginning to to, to stick it in, um, and patients tolerate it uh, very easily. Whereas if you have a patient with a endotracheal tube in place, it's very irritating, very stimulating, and they want it they want it taken out if they're if they're too light. I'm always impressed by the number of uh, monitoring you have on the uh, anaesthetic machines. There's so many different numbers appearing there, monitoring oxygen levels, there's so many different controls. What are the main things you're looking at on those monitoring devices? So the main thing is looking at monitoring the cardiovascular system. So that would be through ECG, pulse rate and blood pressure. The respiratory system uh, by measuring oxygen saturation, but also looking at gas analysis, so we can look at end tidal carbon dioxide, which gives us an idea of the arterial carbon dioxide partial pressure. Uh, but as well as that, we can look at oxygen levels in the gases that we're breathing in and out, and also the volatile anesthetic agents. We can measure, again, what they're breathing in and what they're breathing out. And what they're breathing out, once they've reached a steady state, gives us an approximation of the arterial concentration and therefore approximation of the brain concentration. Uh, they're, they're the main things. Sorry, and we'd also we and also with the respiratory system, we'd look at um, we look at airway pressures um, and flow volume loops and, and those kind of things to assess how how well we're ventilating the patient. Sometimes you need to um, put an arterial line in as well. Is that because you want to get a slightly better level of uh, oxygen oxygenation, or is that uh, for other reasons as well? Uh, so the benefits of an arterial line are it gives you beat-to-beat -beat blood pressure readings um, rather than if, when you do a non-invasive blood pressure reading, you, it's a cuff on the arm and you inflate that every three to five minutes, depending on what you want to do. And that just gives you a snapshot of what the blood pressure is at that point. The arterial line gives you a blood pressure reading on a beat-to-beat -beat basis and also tell you the pulse rate. And it can also give you an idea of whether the patient's adequately filled with fluid, um, we can look at the variation in the in the blood pressure on the on the arterial line. Plus, it gives us access to arterial blood, which we can use for sampling to look at oxygenation um, and other gas levels and do a blood gas from. What about the airway maintenance? If you um, during the during the process, how do you check if something plays up on the uh, laryngeal mask or the intubation? Is there anything you can you're watching for? So I guess with so with the laryngeal mask, there's a couple of things we can watch. You've got the circuits, and if they're breathing spontaneously, you can you can look at the bag, um, that, which is just a reservoir bag on the end, and that will inflate and deflate as a patient breathes in and out um, in inspiration and expiration. Uh, you can look at airway pressures, which is, uh, so as they breathe in, they'll have a negative pressure, and as they breathe out, they'll have a slightly positive pressure. If you then go on to positive pressure ventilation, the airway pressures are more probably more important. You can look at peak pressures and you can look to see whether there's um, uh, whether it's high you know, particularly high pressures, which might suggest that you haven't got a patent airway for whatever reason with a with a laryngeal mask, or you can look for a leak. Um, so if you're on low flows and you're not getting enough uh, new gas going into the circuit. The, the bellows and the ventilator will, will will start to drop and you'll have to either turn the flows up or stop the leak, ideally stop the leak. If you've got an endotracheal tube in place, um, which again is a definitive airway, you can look at the airway pressures and 
normally they'll go up during inspiration and then they'll come back down again in expiration. If they're particularly high, again, you need to look for, for problems to why that might be. So therefore, there's a number of ways of keeping an idea of how well the uh, patient remains intubated or how well the laryngeal mask is, is inflated. Uh, really, the um, other thing is, what about complications of anesthesia? Are there anything important we need, the medical student needs to be aware of? I've learned about malignant hypoparexia, which I believe is, relates to a lot of to family history or previous, uh, knowing that patients have previous anesthesia is a good sign. Any other factors about that and what is the importance of malignant hypoparexia, i.e. How, how common is it? So malignant hyperparexia is is a serious complication of anaesthesia. It's it's pretty rare though. Um, it is a it's a pharmacogenetic disorder um, of calcium homeostasis of skeletal muscle. Uh, so it is it is inherited, and these days it's quite common that you'll get some sort of history. You'll, you should be able to pick it up in the history, um, either from a family member having had a problem or the patient themselves having had a problem but generally they're all if, if a patient's had a test the rest of the family will get tested to see if they have it as well it's what it's triggered by certain anesthetic agents uh succinophonium, which is a muscle relaxant which isn't as commonly used as it used to be uh and volatile anesthetics so any of those can trigger it and it can come on quite quickly but it can also have a very slow onset and I've heard it can even you know, come on a day or two after anesthesia. However, uh, it would usually come on over a period of about 30 to 60 minutes. And what we would see with that is a high it's a hypermetabolic state and you would see high temperatures, uh, high CO2 production, acidosis, and you may get some, it's a disorder of muscle, so you may get muscle dyspasm, which is where the, the muscle um, the jaw can can get can can go spastic, um, and if left untreated, the muscle starts to break down, and the patient gets a metabolic acidosis and gets very sick, and it is life threatening. Sorry, it is very rare, and it can be treated. So uh, the the main thing is to remove the trigger. So move to a volatile free anesthesia, so that would be a propofol infusion. Um, it, this is if it occurs, and the treatment is dantrolene which is a drug that um, will reverse the effects of the, the MH. Uh, and the patient will need to go to, remain intubated and go to ICU. They may need to be actively cooled um, and, and all supportive measures to, um, until, until the dantrolene has its effect and the, the process is turned off. So it's, it's, prevent, it's treatable, but it's also preventable if you're aware of it. Um. So if you're aware of it, or if the, if, the, if the patient is at risk of it, either they've had it before, or they're confirmed case, or there's a suspicion, you would give a an, an MH free anesthesia. So you just don't give volatile anesthetics, and you don't use succinophonium. All other drugs are safe. The other other questions the medical students have put in, put towards you about how do you about actually the process of intubation? They're obviously wary of how they learn this. It's one of those processes they're always. Uh, are keen to learn, but it's obviously a, it's a, quite a good technical exercise. What are the different steps you take take in the process of putting a laryngeal mask in or intubation? What are the actual step-by-step uh, -step processes you do? Okay, well, look, we'll, we'll talk about intubation. So first, you do, you do it as safe as you possibly can, and you plan all your steps beforehand. So I always, you always have an anaesthetic nurse assisting you. Um, you have all your equipment ready, and you have all your drugs ready. 
and then it's a uh, and it's something that we're familiar with and we do over and over again and we would use the same steps each time so it would start off by getting IV access in the patient uh, ideally unless unless it's a child but we'll assume it's an adult and we've got IV access initially put all our monitoring on uh, and then we would pre-oxygenate the patient as we said the pre-oxygenating provides a reserve of oxygen in the body uh, in the lungs so once they're adequately pre-oxygenated uh, which is which is generally either three large tidal volume breaths or um, uh, a number of doing it for a couple of pre-oxygenating for a couple of minutes or waiting till the FiO2 expired FiO2 um, sorry expired oxygen is about 70% once that's happened we would then give the drugs which Normally, I would use a combination, so I'd give some midazolam, some fentanyl, some propofol, followed by a muscle relaxant such as rocuronium. That, depending on what dose you give, that will take about 90 seconds to work. So at that point, just you'll ventilate the patient with the just handheld bag, um, with a bag, a mask, and turn the valve so you can generate some pressure with the bag. So you're ventilating the patient may or may not turn on some volatile anesthetic at this time to, to keep them asleep. Um, and then once the muscle relaxants had its effect, we'll get the laryngoscope out, which will be prepared at the side. The anesthetic nurse will hand it to you and you'll visualize, hopefully visualize the vocal cords. And then you'll take your endotracheal tube and pass that through the vocal cords, inflate the cusp, and then connect the patient back up to the circuit and confirm that the tube is in the right place. And to do that, there's a number, you can look for fogging of the tube, which is the water vapor coming out of the lungs. You can feel the compliance of the lungs with the bag as you hand ventilate. But the definitive thing is looking for carbon dioxide on your gas analyzer. If it's in if it's in the esophagus, you won't get carbon dioxide. But if it's in the trachea, you will get carbon dioxide. The other thing you can do is auscultate both lungs to make sure that you haven't gone down the right main bronchus. Um, and once you've done all that, you'll tie in the tube and then you can um, pop them on the ventilator and give them volatile anesthesia, oxygen, some air and proceed with surgery. We've covered a lot of, lot of ground so far. I've got one more final question for you and we really appreciate the ex excellent uh, information. The final question is actually the, the reverse of all this. What about the process of extubation? What are the steps you do to prevent a, um, an aspiration or reduce the chance of that? Again, it in elective surgery, you would hope that the patient is well, well, the patient, we wouldn't have proceeded unless the patient was well fasted, so they should be relatively low ex uh, aspiration risk. Um, however, if it's emergency surgery and you're assuming a full stomach, uh, they are still at risk of regurgitation and aspiration. So for extubation to occur safely, uh, you need the drugs that you've given to warn off so that the patient starts to wake up. You need them to be breathing spontaneously, uh, and they need to be and they need to be capable of maintaining their own airway. So we can aid that by turning off. If we're using volatile anesthesia, we turn off the volatile, turn up the flows, and the idea is they then breathe out the volatile anesthetic that's on board. Uh, and it's a slow process that will hang around for probably a few hours afterwards in very low levels, but they blow it off quite quickly. Um, if, we've given, if they've got muscle relaxation on board, we either have to wait for that to wear off or give a drug that will aid in reversing that. 
So commonly we would use something like neostigmine uh, combined with, with either atropine or glycoprolate. That, that increases the level of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. Or if we've used a muscle relaxant such as rocuronium or vecuronium, we can use a drug called Sagamadex, which specifically targets those drugs and sort of mops them out of the circulation and therefore out of the uh, neuromuscular junction and, and <clears throat> reverses their action. Uh, they, the patient will need to have a patent, capable of having a patent airway. So once, once they're breathing spontaneously on the tube, open their eyes and showing some signs that they're a bit more awake, we'll take the tube out. But I guess at all those times, and we'll also suction, before we take the tube out, we'll suction their airway, and that's mainly to get rid of respiratory secretions, things like saliva that um, they can also aspirate on. Um, and But if we're, if we're very concerned that they're still on a full stomach, we can sit them up a little bit or turn them on their side um, so that if anything does come out, it, it will fall out of their mouth um, onto, the, onto the pillow um, rather than going down into their lungs. But if we're very concerned, you could just keep the patient asleep and send them to the intensive care unit. Um, but obviously, at some point, you're going to have to take the tube out. Well, look, you've, uh, you've covered so much ground. I hope this, the medical students find this brilliant, and uh, as I have today, it's been well, I've appreciated it a lot. And uh, thanks again, Nick, for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Gavin, for inviting me. And, um, hopefully they can uh, gain something from this. The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as a one, of, one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please be also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thank you very much for listening to our podcast, Australian Medical Education or Aussie Med Ed. It's been a pleasure giving you this information and I'd like any further feedback or questions directed towards me, put towards gavin at med-ed.com.au. Any questions on a particular area of medicine will be directed towards a specialist in the area. We'll make it as a part of our podcast the next time forward to hearing from you and once again we'll look forward to the next time you might listen thank you once again